Christianity has been around for about 2,000 years now. And while it has become increasingly unpopular here in the West, it, it continues to thrive and multiply all throughout the world. In fact, Christianity is currently growing at twice the rate of population growth in Asia. And it is projected that in sub-Saharan Africa, the number of Christians will double by 2050. That is truly incredible growth, isn't it? And that growth is incredibly frustrating to those who believe that Christianity is false or unhealthy or simply opposed to their own preferred worldview. Well, should there be any such opponents of Christianity here with us this morning or joining us at home over Zoom or perhaps listening to this recording at some future point? Pay attention. Because if you want to completely eradicate biblical Christianity from the face of the earth and to do so while heaping the most possible shame on Christians to boot, you need only to do one thing. And that is to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then Christianity loses absolutely all of its power and influence. The Bible itself itself would agree with you in that case that Christians are liars and they are hopeless and they are, of all people, most to be pitied. Now, That being said, do keep in mind that the blade cuts both ways. Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, then that also proves the authority and truthfulness of all that Jesus said and did. And that means that every one of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, have to reckon with that reality and its implications, which are both numerous and far-reaching. It speaks to things such as whether God exists, And whether he is who he says he is, it speaks to the personhood of Jesus Christ. It speaks to the reliability of Jesus' teachings and of the Bible itself. It speaks as to whether miracles are possible and whether there are supernatural events that natural laws cannot explain. It speaks to whether we are answerable to a divine authority and whether we are God's friends or his enemies. And even whether our lives today have any meaning whatsoever. We could go on and on about the implications of the resurrection on things like morality and society and sociology and psychology and criminology and and sexuality and economics and politics and medicine and basically whatever it is that you're doing right now or studying to do at some point in the future. So for Christians and non-Christians alike, the issue of whether the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened is an absolutely huge question that we must contend with. And this morning... We're going to do just that. And I only have a short time to do so, so we're going to move fast. My aim is to answer four questions, 
all taken from one section of one letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Here are the questions which you can find on your handout. Did the resurrection happen? Why does the resurrection matter? What is the resurrection like? And how should all of that affect us today? Ready? Here we go. Question one. Did the resurrection happen? We're going to jump right in near the end of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Which, by the way, was not a particularly model church. There was infighting and factions and immorality and lawsuits and other pretty messed up stuff happening in that church. And one of those messed up things was that some of the church members were starting to deny that resurrection was even possible at all. And that's frankly understandable, to be honest, because resurrection is not something that we see every day or really any day. I don't have any resurrected friends. You don't have any resurrected friends. And the people in Corinth that Paul was writing to 2,000 years ago also didn't have any resurrected friends. And so that makes resurrection hard to believe. And hard-to-believe things easily become unbelieved things. And the next thing you know, you've got a bunch of Corinthians back then, or Center County residents today, who say Christianity is just fine without the resurrection, to which the Apostle Paul says, no, it is absolutely not fine without the resurrection. But let's let Paul speak for himself. This is 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul starts off by saying that he needs to remind this church of what they should already know. This thing called the gospel. A word which means good news. So what is this good news? Well, Paul lays it out for us right there in verses 3 and 4. In two points. Number one, first... Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And second, number two, Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, some of you may not recognize 80% of the words in those sentences. 
That's understandable. So let me lay it out for you. According to the Bible, our perfect God created man and woman in his image. And he gave them free will to choose to obey or to disobey him. And it wasn't long before they willfully chose to disobey. The Bible calls that sin. Through that choice, all God's creation became corrupted by sin and death entered the world. But worst of all, man and woman, by their sin, created this massive gap in the relationship between sinful mankind and their sinless God. However, the Bible tells us that God, being rich in mercy, though we were his enemies and dead in our sins, chose to send his only son, Jesus Christ, to restore that broken relationship. This was accomplished by Jesus being crucified in our place 2,000 years ago. And three days after his burial, God raised him from the dead, which Christians simply call the resurrection. It's what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. So now, all those who by faith trust in Jesus as their king and savior are united to him so completely that he takes on and forgives all of our sin while we take on all of his perfections. And we are likewise promised that one day we too will be raised from the dead just as he was and like him will never die again. That's what the Christ, what Christians call the gospel. That's really good news. It's why we worship. So now, Paul, having reminded the, Christ, the Corinthians of the role that resurrection plays in this gospel message, he goes to great lengths to show that even though his audience may not have witnessed the resurrection firsthand, there are literally hundreds of people who did. And they're still alive. And so Paul says, go talk to them. Go find them. That's my challenge to you, Corinthians. If you think there is no resurrection, here are a whole list of people that you can go and interview yourselves. And just look at this list that Paul gives. Verse 5. He mentions Cephas. That's another name for Peter. Jesus' right-hand man. Peter would have known if it wasn't Jesus who came back to de- from the dead, right? Same thing with the twelve. These were Jesus' besties. So you can toss out any of these, these imposter theories. That it wasn't really Jesus that they saw resurrected. It was somebody else. Jesus is still dead. It doesn't make any sense. Then verse 6 says that there were 500 people at one time. Listen, if someone came in here right now, into, into our meeting place, came through, the, came through those doors and said, Hey guys! Elon Musk is down in the fellowship hall for our Easter service. Right, you don't laugh. You know, you'd be like, yeah, okay. Uh, that guy has had too much Easter wine already. Maybe April Fool's if we want to be more generous. But let's say that, let's say that after they came in and said that, a second person came in and said, hey everybody, Elon Musk is down there in the fellowship hall listening to our Easter service. I, I bet like, at least Slava would have like stand up and be like, hold on. You know, and he'd, he'd go down there and he'd check, right? Because two people saying that, 
maybe you should pay attention to it. Now, let me tell you, if a third or fourth or fifth or sixth person came in those doors and said, guys, Elon Musk is down there. He's talking about rockets. It's really cool. Like, (laughs) nobody here would still be listening to me. You'd all get up and go see Elon Musk down the hallway. I don't care if you're a big fan or not. You're like, well, it's some kind of celebrity guy and something to his face. And so I'm I'm telling you, that's what would happen. Now, what if 500 people Walked in here and said, Elon Musk is down the hall. I can't fit 500 in here. But that, that just shows you the ridiculousness of that. There would be no doubt whatsoever that Elon Musk was down in the fellowship hall. Absolutely no doubt. So, so why, why could, how could someone think 500 people saw Jesus resurrected? Eh, probably didn't happen. And then there's, there's, there's James in verse 7. Paul brings up James. That's Jesus' own blood brother, who, it's worth noting, plainly did not believe in Jesus when Jesus began his ministry. What changed? How about coming back from the dead? That would do it, right? Similarly, the resurrected Jesus, we're told, even appeared to Paul himself. And not long ago, right here at Grace Fellowship Church, as we're going through the book of Acts... We learned that Paul's background was that this dude was going around killing Christians and dragging their families off to prison. Some of them were being executed. And Paul did so much damage to the fledgling church that when he finally encountered the resurrected Jesus and he talked with him and believed in him, the church that had formed at that time was terrified of this guy and did not want to let him to their Jesus club. Because, duh, some of those people's families were in prison because of this guy. They still were. Paul didn't go around and let them all out. This is a big deal. And Paul agrees with that. That's why he declares here in verse 9 that he is the least of this band of missionaries. Not even worthy to be considered a part of this Jesus movement thing. So, my friends, did the resurrection happened. It absolutely did. And Paul is so confident of this that he gives us this massive list of witnesses to speak with so that any doubters could go and have their doubts cleared up on their own. Now, before we move on to our second question, let me briefly mention two objections to the resurrection because they are the ones that I've heard the most and that I myself used to believe when I was an atheist. So maybe you've heard these yourselves or wondered these things. Here's objection number one. Maybe the resurrection is all made up. It's actually a mass conspiracy propagated by Jesus' followers in order to secure power. Have you heard that one? (laughs) If that were true, we must ask a follow-up question then. What power did they have? Nearly all of Jesus' original followers were imprisoned or exiled or executed. Frankly, if they were trying to win power and respect, they did a pretty terrible job. Just read the New Testament. Jesus' disciples were constantly made out to be a bunch of bungling, self-centered, faithless nobodies. If their goal had been power... They did nearly everything completely backwards. 
So I'm sorry, this conspiracy of power theory just doesn't hold water. It doesn't make any sense. So objection number two, perhaps you've heard, maybe this band of Jesus followers wholeheartedly believed it, but were actually deceived. But this again makes no sense. Because there were literally hundreds of witnesses on over 12 different occasions in a variety of settings over a period of 40 days. Jesus was seen by men and women inside and outside in small and large groups walking and talking and eating with him. Some people touched him. Others watched him eat real, actual food. That's not a deception. It really happened. And frankly, if this were all some kind of deception, why didn't the Jewish or the Roman authorities simply find Jesus' body and parade it around the city? They, that, that would have shut this whole thing down immediately. But they didn't because they couldn't. Because Jesus was actually and truly resurrected. There's the answer to our first question. Question number two, why does the resurrection matter? Paul now turns to address those in the church who are saying that there is no resurrection. So pay attention, because if despite what we've already covered, you still believe that there is no resurrection and you'd like to altogether destroy Christianity, Paul is about to tell you exactly how to do it. So let's pick up in verse 12, and we're going to read through verse 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So there it is. Right there in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then I am wasting my time standing up here and you all are wasting your time sitting right there. Stop coming to church. Stop reading your Bibles. Stop praying. And definitely stop telling people that Jesus saved you because he didn't. Maybe he tried, I guess. But according to verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That means you are not right with God. That means you are not forgiven. That means you are not his children and he is not your father. No, You're his enemies. God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, who spoke galaxies into existence 
and, and by whose sovereign will causes the sun to rise and set each and every day, this God is opposed to you. Because in your sin, you are opposed to him. And after this two-second slice of life passes here on this earth, you're going to die. And you're not going to enter his heaven where God would personally shelter you and love you and forever wipe away your every tear. No, friends. You will spend all eternity, forever and ever, separated from him and separated from all Blessing and goodness and safety and peace. And without any hope of any of that ever changing. And that is not only true for you, but for all who have lived and died from the beginning of time and from all who will come after you starting now to the end of time. That is why Paul writes in verse 19 that if we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because this is it, friends. This is as good as it gets. Your best life is happening right now. So congratulations. You are the coronavirus generation. And it's only downhill from here. Do you see, friends, why Paul is so utterly shocked that people think they gain something by rejecting the resurrection? Why do you think people do that? Maybe maybe ignorance? Like they really don't think it happened? Maybe that's why Paul lists all those people that they could go talk to, right? But But I think for many people, this is... This is almost certainly true of the Corinthian church. It's not actually ignorance, but volition. They want this to be all there is. Because, Because if we keep our eyes on this world, the right here, right now, it allows us the luxury of doing whatever we want. We get to be in charge. We get to make the rules. We get to be God. And if you're familiar with the bigger picture of the Bible, you know that that's not a new idea. The desire to be God is what led Adam and Eve to sin in the first place. And look what it got them. They became of all creatures most to be pitied. Do you really want to follow in those footsteps? But I think there's another reason that people reject the resurrection too. It's because they imagine that life after the resurrection isn't going to be much different than their lives are right now, which, to be frank, is mediocre at best most of the time. And maybe it'll even get worse, because after they're resurrected, we're basically just going to sit around on harps, or sit around with harps on clouds, singing and, and praying and you know, singing Gregorian chant or something like that, Right? Like that's, that's kind of what people believe. That's what, that's what I myself used to believe even for years after becoming a Christian. I probably learned more from watching Looney Tunes about that than what the Bible actually said. Now I'm very pleased to tell you that that is an altogether incorrect 
perspective. Let's see what Paul has to say about it. We're going to jump ahead to verse 35. I'm going to read through almost the end of the chapter. Okay, this is a lot to take in. Don't get lost in the details. We'll unpack it afterwards. Verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Now skip with me down to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Pause right there. Cliffhanger. We'll come back to it. You guys could probably barely see this. But this is an apple seed. Here you go, people on Zoom. There's your apple seed. And we all know that in a tiny apple seed, it has within it the potential to become an enormous apple tree that bears sweet, juicy fruit year after year after year. Right? You learned that in school. But how long has it been since you stopped to think about how very strange that is? If you were to carefully examine this little brown seed, you'd quickly determine that it has nearly nothing in common with its future form. Consider a full-grown apple tree. Picture the thick brown wood and the sprawling branches, or the hundreds of green leaves, or even the crunchy apples themselves. But, could you heat your home with this? Could, could children play in these branches? Could you sit in the shade of this and read a book? And yet, 
If we were to put this little seed in the ground and it ceases to be all of those things and so much more become possible. This or that amazing multi-purpose tree is resurrected from the death of this tiny little seed. Now, can you imagine a bunch of seeds hanging out inside an apple one day, and one of them says to another, you know, I bet when we die, we're going to come back as, like, better seeds. But, like, you know, seeds with little harps floating on clouds and singing a Gregorian chant. Yeah, I know it's a ridiculous analogy, right? But wouldn't it be even a more ridiculous assumption on the seed's part? The seed would have no idea how glorious it was to become afterwards. Paul here in this text says we're just like that. Do you see how many times the word glory appeared in just verses 40 through 43 alone? Seven times. Seven times. Paul is simply blown away by it. And this is how he concludes, starting partway through verse 42. What is sown is perishable. What is raised, what is resurrected is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. My friends, in the resurrection, you are not going to be bored. You are not going to be disappointed in any way. You are not going to be dishonored or weak. And you're not even going to be this. You are going to be glorious. And you are going to be as gloriously different from this as that apple tree is different than this. Okay. I'm low on time. So let me skip ahead to verse 50. You probably noticed that Paul spends a good time, a good bit of time talking about the perishable and the imperishable. Why does that matter? Let me propose that it's a question of who wins. It's a question of who wins. What do I mean by that? Well, see, back when the world was normal, we had these things called sports teams. And every year, these sports teams would compete. And people would come from hundreds of miles away to watch those teams compete. And they'd play game after game after game. And eventually, the two best teams would play each other, right? And one of those teams would go home that night knowing that they and they alone were the very best team in the world. Do you remember that? And sometimes... That very best team would be so good that they would go home that night as undefeated champions. Whew! That's glorious, right? That team clearly had the power and they had the authority and they now have the track record to declare that they were the undisputed champions. Now, in a sports context, while the venerable distinction of being undefeated is indeed glorious, everyone knows 
that even such a record as that will only last for a season. Or, if they're truly amazing, maybe a couple seasons. But my friends, there is something right now, all around you, that has a better track record than even the greatest sports team of all time. And that something is death. Since the moment death entered the scene in Genesis 3, it has never lost. Every person who has ever lived has eventually died or soon will. It doesn't matter how healthy they ate or how much they worked out. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or kind or nasty or wildly famous or altogether unknown. Every person dies because death never loses. Except once. And that was in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so death's perfect record is absolutely ruined. And it's more than that, too. Because what Paul is saying here in this text is that at the last trumpet, in the blink of an eye, every person who has trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, whether they were dead for millennia or as alive as you and I are right now, every one of them will be raised imperishable. When that happens, verse 53, when that happens, these perishable bodies that are susceptible to death and decay will put on the imperishable over which death has absolutely no power whatsoever. This mortal body, Paul says, will become immortal and death will not be able to lift a finger against it. So not only did Jesus deliver the, d- deliver the first ever blow to death's perfect record, but because of Jesus and because of our unity in him, death will never win again. And death's loss of power is going to be so complete, this text says, so utterly and absolutely complete that we're going to sing songs of mockery over it. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You may steal our lives, death, whether by old age or cancer or coronavirus or crucifixion, but you have been defanged. You may claim to have stolen the lives of nearly three million people from COVID-19 over just this past year alone. And we mourn them, for this is not the way God intended things to be. But for those who have trusted in Christ, someday soon, those who are stolen from us prematurely will rise up and we will join them in the glorious song, O death, where is your sting? That's with the resurrection is like, friends. It's more glorious than we can even imagine. And because death itself is defeated, it will never end. So what does this all matter right now? 
How should it affect us today? Well, we began our time by observing that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, we Christians are of all people most to be pitied. But, my friends, we've seen that Jesus has been raised. And so we Christians are of all people most to be envied. But the thing is, we Christians also know that there's nothing inherently in us that's enviable. We're nothing special. We didn't do anything to earn our coming victory over death. But we have trusted in the only one who did. Verse 57 says this. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is so very important to recognize, friends. Because for Christians, death's sting is removed. Yes, unless Christ comes first, you will still die. But because of Jesus, death is merely the gateway to victorious immortality. But if you're here this morning, or sitting at home, or listening to this at some point, please hear me. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then that victory is not yours to claim. It belongs only to Jesus and mercifully to all those who he brings to himself. To all those who trust in him. But here's the good news. He's ready to receive you if you are ready to receive him. Listen, no undefeated world championship team would ever allow someone to join that team after the championship has already been won, right? But that's exactly what Jesus offers us. And if you'd like to gain access into that victory, you just need to ask. And I would love to talk to you about how to do that this morning before you leave or before you sign off. But first, let me speak briefly to those who are Christians here. Because Paul writes verse 58, the last verse in this chapter, very specifically to you. Here's what he says. My beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And I'll tell you what, there's probably two or three sermons in that verse alone. But let me encourage you to apply it today in one specific way. Right now, COVID-19 has surely stolen a lot of your joy. Some of you are watching this over Zoom right now because you can't join us here in person. And all of us are mourning the loss of things that we love doing so much, but can't because of a virus that mankind is still struggling to contain even a year later. Paul here says to us, don't give 
up. Instead, be steadfast. Be immovable. Continue abounding in the work of the Lord, loving other people, telling them about Jesus, inviting them to join us and hear of this amazing Savior on Sunday mornings. Persevere. Be steadfast in reading your Bibles, serving your neighbors, and so on. Why? Because in your victorious Lord, Jesus Christ, your labor, however hindered with regulations and covered with masks, is not in vain. He has a purpose for you, friends. He has a purpose for all your labors in him. And those labors are not in vain. They will accomplish what he intends. Both now, when you're mortal, and very soon, when you're not. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we are astounded that you, the undisputed champion who conquered death, and reign supreme over all things, would welcome worthless, broken, rebellious sinners like us. And so giving us worth and glory and immortality that we do not deserve and that apart from you we would not even seek. God, I can't wait to see the faces of those here today a thousand years from now when we are worshiping around your throne. God, we will be so glorious. It will be amazing. God, if there's anybody listening right now who is not a Christian, we pray that the words from the scriptures that we looked at today would show them the pathway to immortality, to find everything they've been looking for, and to find it in Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.